thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you join me as we continue this series on law and the Constitution. We need to understand, really, what law is in order to best understand our Constitution. And so, before we get into the specifics of the Constitution, we need to lay down the understanding of law that precedes the Constitution. In other words, the Constitution didn't just somehow materialize out of thin air. There is a history and actually a law that led to and that preceded and that grounded the Constitution in light of which it must be understood and interpreted. And that law in our country we would consider to be the common law. And and in part we would also say probably coming out of the Reformation though twinged with influences of the Enlightenment natural law as well, that in other words, there is a law of the universe that governs all things, and that law exists really because we believe in a God who created what exists. And God imposed a law or norms upon all of his creation, without which that creation ceases to exist or exist in its intended form. We've talked about this in the past where I've talked about William Blackstone, but just for a refresher briefly for those who may not have caught those episodes, law is described as a rule of action prescribed by some superior which the inferior is bound to obey. That in some ways is actually a description of the rule of law, and what it's referring there to is that there is a law that precedes any positive enactment by a legislative body or any declaration uh, by a judge in a judgment or a ruling that informs the judge's ruling or that should inform the legislature's statutory enactments. And so what we typically uh, call that understanding of law in our country that carried over from England is the common law. Now, a lot of people have heard the term common law. They don't really know what it is or what it means, but it operates in our society all the time. And in the new book that I've written uh, called Recovering the Constitution, Using the Ninth Amendment to Restore Civil Liberty, I give an example of common law that we don't think about uh, very often, but it's, its presence in our lives daily. For example, the law of contracts. When you go into a restaurant and you say to the uh, uh, server, I would, I would like to order this meal, you're in essence offering uh, to enter into a contract between you and the preparer of the meal. And so the restaurant prepares the meal and delivers it to you, and you eat it, and then you dash out the door without paying. Well, that's a breach of contract. We don't think of it in some ways uh, that way, But what we're doing is we're violating what the common law said constitutes a contract. 
You see, over time, people began to realize that we enter into these transactions all the time, and and so what do we call them? What's the nature of that thing? And we called it a contract that you've offered to pay a certain amount of money to buy that dinner, and they have accepted your offer and made that dinner, and then you've completed the transaction by eating it. So dine and dash is wrong. It violates the common law. Even if there is no statute anywhere that says you can't do that, we know you can't do that. And a judge, when the judge rules for the restaurateur and says you have to pay for that meal you ate, he's not making the law. He is announcing what the law is. He recognizes that he has a duty to be just to recognize that there was a contract. That's the way the common law operates. Now, let's give another little quick example of how the common law operates in this same context. You, you go into this restaurant, it's very nice, and you realize, ooh, I can't really afford to eat here. But I'm too embarrassed to leave, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm just going to order a bowl of soup and um, a, gl a glass of tea. And the server comes back and brings you a five-course lobster dinner. It's over $100. Now, you could say, I can't afford to pay for that. I didn't order that. That's not what I offered to enter into a contract for. And you could leave. In which case, a judge would say, well, there was no meeting of the minds here. There was no real ever agreement because you offered to pay money for a glass of tea and a bowl of soup. And the restaurateur did not deliver that, so you don't have to pay for what he did deliver because he didn't deliver what you had ordered or requested or offered to buy. And so the judge would say, you don't have to pay. Not because the judge is making the law, but he's saying that's the nature of contracts. There has to be an agreement. There has to be a meeting of the mind, and there wasn't one, so you don't have to pay. Now, let's assume, though, that you sat there and you said, that's not what I ordered, but that's his bad, right? I'm going to eat the lobster dinner, this five-course meal, and you do. And then you say, I'm leaving because that isn't what I ordered. Now, a judge in that instance would say, wait a minute, there's some equities here that, that come into play. Yes, you ordered only tea and a bowl of soup, but you could have refused this full course meal and said, I'm not paying for it because it's not what I offered to buy. But when the restaurateur came and said, here is this meal, and you knew what it cost from having looked at the menu, and you ate it, you accepted, in essence, his counter offer, and so you have to pay for it. Dining and dash would be wrong again. So that's how the common law works. And, and really, what the courts are doing in those instances, as Blackstone said, is they're not making the law, but discovering the law that is already there and applying it to the situation, to the facts. That's really what the common law is, and that's how it developed over time. And the reason this is so important is because the Supreme Court says this is the law that our founding fathers held to and believed in, and it informed their understanding of the Constitution and the way they wrote it. So here is why 
that common law is so important for the Constitution. In the brief we recently filed, the amicus brief we recently filed in the Dobbs case in front of the Supreme Court involving Mississippi's abortion law, we wrote the following. The precepts of the common law make for a, quote, nomenclature of which the framers of the Constitution were familiar, end quote. That quote comes from a Supreme Court case, Minor versus Happerstedt, that was decided after the adoption of the 14th Amendment. So even after the adoption of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court is saying the Constitution and the amendments thereto, which make up the Constitution, they were written in the nomenclature, in the words that were understood at the common law. And in fact, the court goes on a few years later making this statement, quote, The interpretation of the Constitution of the United States is necessarily influenced by the fact that its provisions are framed in the language of the English common law. So, in other words, if you don't know the language, the nomenclature of the English common law, you won't know what the words of the Constitution were intended by the framers to mean, or by the adopters of the 14th Amendment to mean. So, for example, when I was in college years ago, we sang this barbershop quartet song that said, See that brother dressed so gay, the devil's going to come and carry him away. And the concept was related to the dress, the gaiety, the frivolity of the dress. But now, you see, that word gay would have a different connotation. And so what the Supreme Court was saying in these cases is that you would need to interpret the words of that song according to the way the word gay would have been understood at the time it was written, not the way it would be understood today. So you have to understand the common law to understand the Constitution. Now, the quote that I just gave you continues on. And the court said, not only is it framed in the language of the English common law, but it said, and is to be read in light of its history. In other words, you don't just need to know what the words mean, but the history behind the words for why those words were so important and why that definition was so important. The fact is, the court relies on the common law all the time. It does so even now. And in fact, in another brief that we helped solicit and I reviewed, we note that the Supreme Court does this even today. So in another brief that I believe you can find on our website, it's a brief by Jeff Schaefer and Adam McLeod on behalf of 396 state legislators. In footnote two, we make this statement. Examples of relying on the common law in recent years include Gamble versus United States a 2019 decision where they were trying to determine the meaning of the phrase in the Constitution and the Double Jeopardy Clause about what's the same offense. What did they mean by the same offense? Then in Department of Homeland Security versus Thuragizium, a, a 2020 case, they looked at Blackstone's commentaries as a satisfactory exposition of the common law of England. In Ramos versus Louisiana, 19, another 2020 case, uh, they cited Blackstone and the common law to determine what the right to a jury trial meant. And then in Torres versus Madrid, a case from this year, 2021, they cited Blackstone and talked about the common law multiple times to determine what the meaning of a seizure was within the, the, the words of the Fourth Amendment.
So see, the common law is so important. And this is what makes me so frustrated with the United States Supreme Court that, for example, in Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court was looking at the question of whether the unborn are entitled to due process of law. And the court disingenuously said that the word person is nowhere defined in the Constitution, as if they had to start trying to figure out what a person might mean. But of course, no word in the Constitution is defined. All words have to be understood in light of the nomenclature of the common law, in light of the language of the common law, in light of the history that led to those words in the common law, and the Supreme Court ignored it in Roe, even though it looks to it in almost all other cases, in Roe it did not. And it said, so we're left to look within the context of the Constitution itself to find a meaning. Does the document itself give us any clue as to its meaning? And then the court said, well, gosh, every other place in the Constitution where the word person is used, it's um, a born person, an adult person. Uh, a person doesn't, uh, can't incriminate themselves. Well, you'd have to be born, right? Uh, or a person would have a right to a jury trial. Well, you'd have to be born. A person would have a right not to be, uh, have their home unlawfully searched or their property seized. Well, you'd have to be born. But the court, see, was not recognizing that the common law considered persons to be those whose life came from God or those created by law, such as corporations or body politics, where the law says, okay, we're going to allow you to form this thing that, that we will treat as a person. But of course, human beings aren't created by law. They're created by God. They're created by something apart from law. Our existence is independent of law. And so the Supreme Court was flat dishonest in Roe versus Wade by saying the word person isn't defined. And so we're stuck and we're limited to looking only within how the word person is used within the Constitution when they know that they needed to look at how the word person was understood at the common law. So th th this is so important to appreciate the common law. And we've discussed that in other episodes about the common law and how Blackstone became a key expositor of the common law. In fact, the Supreme Court has said in multiple cases, going back several decades, that Blackstone is the preeminent expositor of the common law. So when we say we need to interpret the Constitution according to the common law, we're not looking at something that's abstract or ethereal, but we can go to Blackstone's commentaries and say, here's what we have discovered over the course of long centuries that these rights, for example, are fundamental to our liberty. Without them, with the diminution of them, we have no liberty. And so Blackstone said the three fundamental rights, the rights that the common law recognized, the rights that precede the Constitution are at least these three absolute rights because they come from God and are a part of what it means to be human, namely the right to personal security. For a person to be secure in his life, his limbs, his body, his health, and his reputation. What constitutes the person?
Then secondly, they talked about private property. And thirdly, they talked about liberty, meaning not liberty to do anything I wanted, but the liberty to move about without prior restraint. In other words, the cops just can't come to your home and arrest you. Or I can't come to your house because I'm mad at you and throw you in the trunk and kidnap you. It was the ability to be free in the exercise of my limbs and my body to move about. That's what, that's what liberty was. And those things come from God. And so, therefore, government doesn't create them. It doesn't bestow them on us. Nor can it take them away without due process of law. Which simply means this. The government cannot diminish or deny your right to personal security, your right to life, limb, health, your reputation. They cannot deprive you of your property or your liberty unless they prove that you have committed a wrong. And the law would declare what those wrongs are. And then prove that you committed the wrong by due process, by a fair process, a process that would be due you to ensure that, that you're not wrongly accused and convicted of a wrong by which you could lose your life, your liberty, or your property. So those are the fundamental rights that the common law said that we had before there was the Constitution. And the Constitution, therefore, must be understood in light of the fact that the people already had those three fundamental rights, for example. Of course, they're not the only rights that the common law acknowledged, but they were considered the fundamental or absolute rights. Absolute in the sense that they don't come at all from government, and they don't come because you exist in society and society owes it to you. They come from the fact that you're a human being created by God and you're accountable to God for your life, your liberty, and your property. How you use your body, your limbs, your health, your property, your movement, your going from place to place. Those are the fundamental things at common law that were understood to be law that preceded the enacted law of the U.S. Constitution. You see, the U.S. Constitution is not what our framers would have understood to be fundamental law, because fundamental law preceded the Constitution. The Constitution was a form of positive law, man-made created law, because enacted by the states sitting as a form of a legislative body. Now, we're going to end uh, today's episode here and then begin to look at the Constitution. And specifically, I want us to focus a little bit on the Ninth Amendment because it is the interpretive key for understanding the whole Constitution. And I hope you'll join me next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.